0: Good morning. Good morning and welcome to this uh, Friday Chapel here at Goshen College. Again, we want to welcome all those of you from the community who normally don't live here in our res halls or our small group housing or our student apartments. So welcome here to our campus. My name is Bob Yoder, one of the campus pastors here. We've had a number of good days here with Ted Swartz who has intermingled himself in our campus. On Wednesday morning, he presented in chapel on uh, the big story, the Big and Ted story, met with a class in the afternoon, sold out, or sold out a performance for Wednesday night of the big story in Humble Center. Yesterday morning, he began by leading a workshop for local pastors and worship leaders, along with Doug lichty um one class, theater class. In the afternoon, met with a couple of other classes last night performed Laughter and Lament in this space to a very large audience, about 600 or so people. Um, this morning is here in chapel. Tomorrow, or this afternoon we'll be with another class, and tonight we'll be performing, along with Tim Rupke, I'd Like to Buy an Enemy at the Goshen Theater in downtown Goshen. And so I would encourage you all to consider attending that event. Uh, tickets for Goshen College students are $3.00. Tickets for others are $5 per person or $10 for your whole family uh, that you bring along. As I mentioned on Wednesday's chapel, uh, the profits of these three performances, evening performances, are going to support the ministry of The Window. The Window is a multi-denominational effort that provides services to help meet basic needs of the elderly and anyone with limited income in our area. Just yesterday morning in the Elkhart Truth a local newspaper, it featured an article about several nonprofit service agencies in our community that serve those in need. And this is what it said about the window, or some quotes about the window. I quote The window in downtown Goshen will probably run out of fruit, cereal, and hygiene items this morning when their pantry opens, said Ed Swartley, executive director of the agency. If we send between 15 and 20 people through in an hour and a half, we'll be out of those things, Swartley said. We can always use donations. But right now, those items are the most pressing need, according to Swartley. In 2011, we served 942 more boxes than in 2010. That's 942 more families, equivalent to 3,800 people. There was an increase. And I expect the same for this year. We can use anything, Swartley said. So if you do not have plans this evening at 7 o'clock, or want to alter your plans this evening at 7 o'clock for about an hour, I would encourage you to consider spending $3, students, on a ticket to a good show with a good message to help support a good organization. And why not? Buy a ticket for somebody else to attend a good show with a good message to support a good organization. So this morning, I went and purchased four tickets for any students, the first four students who come and contact me, you're welcome to these. This morning's chapel is titled Laughter and Lament, Reflections on Laughter and Lament. Ted will be sharing a bit more personally and offer words of encouragement, hope, and challenge as we consider our own faith journeys and our own lives. Before we bring Ted onto stage, I again want to light our lamp this morning as a reminder of God's presence. Let us pray together. Gracious God. Thanks for another day of life, for this morning, for the ministry of Ted and Company Theater Works. We pray for safe travels as Ted and Tim move on to the next journey. Amen.
1: Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you again this morning, Uh, it has been an an exciting and exhilarating time to be on campus, Um, we've really enjoyed the students we've met, the classes, it's an impressive place, I hope you all realize that, so it's nice to be back. Laughter, laughter is an essential part of life, It's it's a societal lubricant perhaps, one of the true gifts of the spirit. Most entomologists, those who study where words come from, believe that the word humor is derived from the same root word as the word human, humility, and my personal favorite, humus. Meaning of the earth, connected to the dirt, the soil, that which makes things grow. Where things are real, gritty, and full of nutrients. To laugh is to be grounded in the best possible way. A sense of humor is a proclamation that I am fully human. To lament. The dictionary definition to lament is two parts. One, to express regret or disappointment. And two, to proclaim deep grief. It's an interesting word, lament. Those two definitions are both technically accurate but are very different. The first one applies to your choice of an entree that didn't go as well as you would have liked. In a restaurant, or the fact that you have an eight o'clock class on Monday morning. You may lament that. The other conjures up images of howling in the dark, deep, profound grief, pain you didn't have the tools to deal with. And I have always understood laughter, I think, and the first definition of lament. But now I have, for the first time, understanding of the second. On May 17th, 2007, I lost my business partner, my writing partner, my creative partner, my travel companion, my acting partner, the company graphic designer, the product manager, and my best friend. Lee Eshelman took his own life that day, and the laughter went away. Laughter, which was our primary goal in writing and acting, where friendship started, where a successful business was rooted, was now ethereal and elusive. I had met Lee in 1987. It was a theatrical emergency. I had a series of sketches written and planned for a conference three days away, and the actor canceled on me. He had a rehearsal that he had to attend in another show. I lost my partner. And I was introduced to Lee, I'd never met him before. I met him on a Wednesday. Despite an admitted cautious nature, he agreed to go. He said it was the hungry desperation in my face, and the fact that I had based these sketches on a Monty Python routine. (laughs) One of the patron saints of comedy. After our performances there, at that weekend, most people thought that we had been together for years, when we had actually met three days before. That's from 1987. That's a bedpan. Pat Robertson was running for president at the time, and I think that was my uh, assessment of his political platform. (laughs) We had discovered our comedic soulmates. We both loved Monty Python, Andy Griffith, Bob Newhart, and Saturday Night Live. We had an almost identical appreciation for what was funny, but with different and complementary ways to get there. Lee was a brilliant wordsmith, a summa cum laude college graduate with the soul of a class clown. He was an art major who got one B in four years of college. It was an art class. (laughs) I was the concept writer who wrote minimalistic physical pieces depending on facial expression and lots of falling down. One of the pieces that we wrote early on was based on the idea that something can be funny if you put two things together that don't belong. The paradox can be funny. So we put together two loves of mine. One was Shakespeare and the other was basketball. And wrote a piece (laughs) that we called Bill in the Booth. What would it sound like if William Shakespeare did the play-by-play and the color of a professional (laughs) basketball game? Tis three minutes hence to our conclude. Spurs have the lead, 85 to 84, while Detroit controleth the ball. <laughs> what ho? Anderson doth steal it hence. Oh, you knave. <laughs> oh, thou pernicious caitiff! you are not, you are, I'll mark this play. For this perchance a turning point. Post haste, he doth bring the ball forecourt. Sir William. There is some post to us or thee. Dost thou seeth him? <laughs> Robinson is open underneath. Oh, but ho. E'en while the ball is yet on route. Rodman, whither has he come? <laughs> what ho? A foul, I say. <laughs> With arms encumbered thusly, yet does he still score. The bucket and one more. <laughs> 88 to 84. Dumas taketh yet another pass and perchance to drive the lane. But in his path there riseth one David Robinson to swat asunder yon ellipted orb. What I charge you, get you home. Take that weak stuff out of town. <laughs> and thus we go round bout the other way. Oh, fie! Fie on it. Prithy unofficial. Didst thou not see the contact of that knave lamb beer whilst Thomas did drips the ball? I, Lambier, a rascal, an eater of broken meats, a base, proud, beggarly, filthy, worsted, stocking knave, I will look no more, (laughs) lest the deficient sight topple down all headlong, all proprieties of hootdom. Do not believe his cries of innocence, then saw you not his face. It speaks of deceit and malice, most base. Oh, that is an ill phrase. A phrase most vile, technical foul, most appropriate, 88 to 85. And once again on offense, perchance to see Isaiah to pass or not to pass. <laughs> well, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to sling an outrageous pass to gain an assist or to take up arms against a sea of pernicious defense, (laughs) to put it up. Aye, and there it flies. Whoosh. (laughs) Prithee, was that not a tray? Did not the shot originate behind the curling arc? And thrice his head doth waving up and down, they shouted thrice, and it was so. 87, 86, 88, 87, San Antonio. Time is drawing short, Rodman waxes desperate perchance to steal the ball, aye, a bump, a touch, a tap, the sixth in such offense, whither wilt thou go, get thee to a locker room, (laughs) fouled out again, alas, Sir Dennis, we knew him well. Mere seconds remain. Daniel's in possession. Peace, break thee long, young Elliot, that's waving supplication in the pate. Fetch you hither the ball, perchance to score. What ho, a slam. Surely the hoop was split asunder. Forsooth the game is truly out of reach. And there, there the buzzer. To some a most innocuous resound. To others as to be as like the howling of death's hound. Oh, Detroit dead oh the pistons blown
2: ow
1: mount mount up thy seat is on high tis time tis time for thee to go 9187 san antonio Thank you. Once I had explained to Lee what the basketball terms meant, he was brilliant as well. (laughs) He was the funniest person I had ever met in my life. No one else has made me laugh harder or more often. a fruit. And? Your cheeks are like a fruit.
3: Nathan? Are you aware that my wisdom is like the grains of sand on the shore, the waves on the ocean, the stars in the firmament? Firmament? (laughs) It's poetry. It means lots of space.
1: (laughs) But the best part is I can just skip right to the end.
3: And then, of course, now that would be Andy. Right. The guy that I room with my junior year?
1: Yeah. Um, Could you you tell me about the Cajun popcorn shrimp
3: here? A chorus of sprightly urchins from the sea. (laughs) Dressed pretentiously in luxuriant breading. Oh, yes, they are just hopping about and hopping about. Ah, the noble cabage, graceful in hue, majestic in form, regal in its bearing. I practically see a little halo around it, don't you? You know, there are many ways to prepare this noble comestible. But what many people forget is is that it is a layered vegetable, much like the chambered nautilus. Therefore, one must cut carefully to preserve the visual integrity of the line. Now, too many amateurs pick up the first sharp object they can find and just begin hacking into the kibbage with no forethought, just lickety-split like Betty Crocker crossed with Lizzie Borden.
1: (laughs) We began to dream about the possibilities of packaging the chemistry, the love of comedy, and the love of each other, and taking it on the road. The next decade was about creating new art, growing as artists together, learning about and from each other, learning to negotiate our faults and idiosyncrasies, learning how to disagree. Lee was an introvert and a perfectionist whose first impulse was why something would not work. Like many perfectionists, he was his own greatest critic. I'm an extrovert. And I'm addicted to the next new fun idea, sometimes to the detriment of our current project. It was our greatest point of conflict. It really did begin to feel like another marriage. Someone told me I was the only bigamist that he knew personally. (laughs) We even wrote a sketch about that relationship.
3: It's not like one minute, everything's great, and the next, bam, and you're not communicating. It hurts, and and you wonder how it
1: all got started.
3: It's more like rain eroding a hill. Suddenly you notice that there's this deep channel cut between you, and you wonder why you didn't see it before.
1: Do you know what I mean? Used to be we could laugh and talk for hours. Now I can't even see the big picture. Life has become this extreme close-up of little annoyances. Like if I hear that Beatles analogy one more time,
3: I think I'm going to scream. Take, for example, Lennon and McCartney. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I do. Now, when they wrote Love Me Do, that was two people making each other better. But by the time the White Album came around, it was just four individuals. It wasn't the Beatles anymore at all. Do you know what I mean? And you get tired of little annoyances like, you know what I mean? In the end, it's the small irritations, like this quotes thing. (laughs) He thinks it's funny. But it's not. Do you know what I mean?
1: <laughs> I don't like feeling this way. I mean, he seems so distant, like he's not really trying. Was it all
3: just blind emotion? I mean, back in the early days, I thought there was nobody I'd rather write comedy with. We could sit in front of the word processor for hours.
1: You know how it is when you find that one person, the one that's just right for you, the one, the one that you want to spend the rest of your life writing comedy with?
3: <laughs> but I'm just not getting what I need from him anymore. I hate to admit this, even to myself, but lately I've been looking at other comedians. <laughs>
1: and he shows up late or not at all for writing meetings with the flimsiest of excuses.
3: I admit it, my eye has wandered, but I'm not the only one. We were at this party recently, and Dwayne told some joke about a, about a baseball team or something, and I thought Ted would just bust his gut laughing. I excused myself and got
1: more punch. Well, was it, there was this other comedian, and, well, he seemed to understand. We had a lot in common, you know, baseball, kids. Before I knew it, we were writing together. You never think it's gonna to happen to you, you know? It wasn't much. It was just like, why don't you try that line? Or this might be funny, and before I knew it, we had written three sketches in a one act. <laughs> it seemed so effortless and easy, like it like it was with Lee, you know, before.
3: I was at a Chinese restaurant the other evening with Jeremy. Now Jeremy's an old friend, so it, it seemed innocent enough, but. Still, I felt I shouldn't tell Ted where I'd been. So I told him my uncle died. <laughs> and what is this pestilence that's killing all of his uncles lately, anyway? <laughs> I was doing this bit about the food, this duck entree, and I thought Jeremy would never stop laughing. He just roared and rolled, and, and then he looked me in the eye, and do you know what he said? He said, You look like you haven't been laughed at in a long, long time.
1: In the last four and a half years, I've had reoccurring dreams, oftentimes, with Lee in them, where we're on the road together, like we were for 15 and almost 20 years, actually. Most of them have a very vivid component, like dreams do. In almost every occasion, we're both aware in the dream that he's gone and that he took his own life. In one, Lee looked at me as we were packing up after a show, and he congratulated me on the new projects that I was working on. It was very strange. I said, it would be more fun if I was doing them with you. He responded by saying, "'Then you should have done more to help me.'" I responded by saying, "'Is that why you gave me the ultimate middle finger?' (laughs) End of dream." Within two years of meeting Lee in 1987, my wife, Sue, and I, and others discovered what it was like to deal with someone with a bipolar illness. They witnessed clinical depression up close. I didn't know at the time that's what it was. What I did know that my was that my friend, who could alter, alternately move the world with his creative genius one day, would be unable to get out of bed and simply function as a human being the next. It was terrifying and left me feeling helpless. Twenty years ago, I didn't have the tools or the knowledge. It was becoming a cruel and perhaps ultimate irony. This brilliant comedic actor, this gentle, caring man, so easily made me laugh, who made me feel good about being alive, had profound doubts about his own self-worth and his relationship to God. A God that he searched for so desperately in reading and in writing and in journaling, this God he found too often elusive. So, you can't find God. You find God elusive. What do you do? You write four shows about God. Shows based on biblical story. In essence, we were telling God's story, and the irony of Lee's search seemed to deepen. We had brought to the company and the art all of who we were. The questions, the doubts, the wonder. Theologically, we were learning from each other. Lee was more of a mystic than I was. Although I think that all artists eventually become mystics at some level. The metaphor of journey was becoming important to us in telling those stories. Reflecting of our own journeys, we too were simply followers of Jesus without all of the answers, bumbling along the way, sometimes understanding and sometimes not. Another show we wrote was called The Bob Show. Two actors who have a director who doesn't show up for the last week of rehearsal, he just sends cryptic notes that they argue over who has the correct interpretation of these notes from Bob, who, in fact, has the degree in Bobology. <laughs> we loved this show, in part because we, in essence, were playing each other. The characters' names were Ted and Lee, but I was basically playing Lee's characterization and he was playing mine. I played his reluctance to do the next new thing and he was playing my exuberance about what was next. It was two actors in conflict, letting the audience see us in characterised exaggerations of our own personalities, dismissing each other's ideas, revealing old pains and frustrations. One dialogue went like this. Ted, we can't do that. You never let me do anything. That's not true. We went ahead with that Hamlet and chicken suits idea, okay, which I might add was an unmitigated disaster. That was a very difficult period in my life. It was a difficult period in my life. Can't I change? Yes, of course you can change. I'm changing right now. I don't think you are. Did it ever occur to you that someone else might have a good idea? I will let you know just as soon as you have one. (laughs) The Bob show was really about God. Of course Bob was God. It was the Mennonite waiting for Godot, someone said. We seem to be again waiting for God. But no matter how many standing ovations, how many accolades, how many autographs signed, the illness and the struggle for Lee was never far away. We had a line of posters, t-shirts, videos. We acted in 40 different states, Canada, Africa, and Japan. Our plays were produced in 12 different countries. We created a business and careers out of nothing. We had created a, a new style of comedy around biblical story. Once while standing on a cliff, On the Oregon coast, to our left was impossibly green hills of Douglas fir and redwoods, and to our right was the sun glinting off the Pacific Ocean. We stopped at that point because it had been a long drive and we had drunk a lot of coffee. And as we reflected there, in admiration and relief, (laughs) side by side, (laughs) in the proper urinal stance, Lee said, it is our humor what has brought us here today. And he was right. Because we knew if we weren't funny, we wouldn't be on the coast of Oregon or Nairobi, Kenya, or any of the wonderful towns across this country. I used to joke I was raised a Mennonite, who's also a middle child, so I don't expect much. (laughs) I had always felt that God was more interested in what we could do for others than what I needed myself. I didn't ask for much because it wasn't what I felt my relationship with God was based on. And when Lee died, it manifested itself in this way What right do I have? Why would God deal with my pain, my profound sense of loss, and growing depression when He wouldn't heal Lee? Rather than see God as a place to discover a connection and healing, I did and still in many ways chose to remove myself from God. Do I hold Him responsible? My own anger and guilt was leading me to a dismissal of a God who wouldn't raise up my friend. So what do you do? I didn't do therapy very well. I didn't journey. I didn't journal. I didn't read books that were recommended to me. I just wrote plays. For three years, I wrote. I took my anger, guilt, and pain, and I poured it into writing. In the fall of 2008, I wrote a show called What Would Lloyd Do?, And in that play, a 52-year-old pastor reflects on his life and his church, his disappointments, his pain, and yes, his anger. And from the pulpits, in a sermon he didn't know he was going to deliver and didn't know was going to be broadcast over the radio, he delivered this. The text was from 1 Kings. Elijah. It's about Elijah, isn't it? Elijah. Elijah. Elijah goes up to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. And when he gets up to the top, God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah said, I have always followed you. But your people, they have torn down all of your altars and they they killed all your prophets except for me. And now they're coming for me. And God said, oh, Elijah, go out on the mountain and wait for me there and watch for me as I pass by. And so he did. And then an earthquake shook the mountain. God was not in the earthquake. And then, and then a great wind came and scattered the rocks, but God was not in the wind. And then there was fire. God was not in the, in the fire either. Where is God? Where is he? Is he ever anywhere we want him to be? Is he ever anywhere we expect him to be? You know what it's like? It's like you're a pitcher, and you're on the pitcher's mound, and you're looking for the signal from the catcher, Right? And he gets the signal from the coach, and we all trust the coach, right? All right. Is God in? The, is God in the wind? No. Is God in the earthquake? No, God's not in the earthquake. Is God in the fire? He likes fire, right? Is God in the no? God's not in the fire. God is in the silence. Oh. God is in the silence. And so we trust. And we pitch. And it's hammered. Obviously, God is not in the silence. I was wrong. Maybe I read it wrong. Let me look at it again. No, God's. All right, here we go again. Is God in the wind? No. God in the earthquake? No. God in the fire? No. God is in the silence. Yes. And so we trust and we pitch again. And it's hammered again. Killed. Where is God? I'm listening. Is God here? In the neighborhood where you're afraid to go out after 7 o'clock where the schools are crumbling where you can't pull yourself up because there's nothing to hang on to. Where where marriages and families fall apart. (laughs) Where is God? I mean, does he hear and he can't do anything about it? Or does he hear but he won't do anything about it? Which is it? I keep listening, I keep listening, I hear nothing. May 17th, the day that Lee took his life, we set up the stage for a show. It was live at Jacob's Ladder. We bought some takeout for lunch, and we had a company meeting. Two people. (laughs) Lee was very anxious about a huge video project in the fall, and so we broke the months down, when the production would happen, when the writing would get done, when rehearsals would happen, when sets would be built, and when the money was coming from And that pesky new show that we were premiering in six weeks unrelated to the video shoot, when would that get done? He was understandably concerned about how all of this would happen. I tried to reassure him that we could do it. We always did, even the month several years earlier when we had premiered two shows in one month. And I promised him again I would stop doing this to him, putting him in a position where there was too much to do. He probably didn't believe me. He said almost offhandedly, oh, that new show for July will be fine. I know you'll finish the writing the rest of the show in the next two weeks. We'll finish the rehearsals in June. We'll be tweaking up to the day before, and it'll be fine. But... At 210, we broke, and I went across the street to help Sue teach an acting class. Lee scribbled a few notes on the contract, clarifying a point about rights and percentages for the video shoot, his familiar artistic scrawl, running down the side of the page. I don't remember if we said goodbye. At 4.15, I called his cell phone to clarify a cue point within the show. He didn't answer. Days later, when I listened to the messages on his phone, it was eerie to hear my voice trying to be cheerful, obvious, oblivious to what was happening at that point. I don't remember if we said goodbye. Live at Jacob's Ladder was the story of Jacob and Esau, two brothers loving and betraying each other, asking for and receiving forgiveness. After that Thursday, the set stayed up for two days, and a group from church went with me to tear it down, and we decided to take some pictures of the set first. This was Live at Jacob's Ladder, a show we had co-written with composer and singer Ken Miedema. And then we took a picture of Lee's costume for one of his characters that we put in the crook of the piano on a bar stool where he played several scenes. And then we tore the set down and put it away. And I went up to the lighting booth and I turned the light board off. And this happened. A light came on right above the crook in the piano. That big video project that Lee was so anxious about, they wanted to do it anyway. So I recast, and we went on to shoot those scenes, one of which was a scene from Live at Jacob's Ladder, the last, scene, Lee, the last show Lee and I were to do. Kirk Cloninger was an actor friend from Atlanta, and he was playing Lee's role, Esau. And I was playing Jacob, and we were fine in the scene, and when a director says you're fine, you're probably in deep trouble. I felt like I was running on about 65%. And the the director came with an idea. She said, what if it was Lee coming back to me asking for forgiveness? And that idea locked something inside of me. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to perform Jacob's Ladder again. A two-man show instead of a three-man show. Ken reprised his role as a blind, blue singing angel, and I played all the other roles, both Jacob and Esau. And the final scene looks something like this. Uh, Rachel, Leah, yes, I think you should stay back with the children. No, it's okay, it's fine. Um, I just want this to be a private matter between brothers, you know? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure he's still not angry. It's been 20 years, right? Esau, you look big. Did you get the uh, sheep I sent you?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And the, uh, the camels? The donkeys? Good. The cattle? Right. The goats, did you get the goats I sent? Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought that was a nice touch. We put a little bow on each tail. <laughs> yeah, I brought more. Goats, I mean, not the bows. For, oh, well, we brought the bows for the goats. We didn't want to put the bows on the goats until we needed to know if we actually needed more bows for the goats. Those are lots of goats. They're the best goats I got. Good golly, I got goats. <laughs> uh, why? Well, with the careful breeding, you can eliminate all the... Tr- I'm sorry? Why the goats and the sheep? And the, they're gifts for you, my brother. Well, yes, it has been an eventful and fruitful 20 years. Yes, married twice. Sisters don't recommend it. (laughs) Twelve, actually, eleven boys and a girl. You nice. How's father? Father. Well, he hasn't gotten us mixed up in a long time. <laughs> Jacob, why are you here? There's nothing more you can take from me. <laughs> why are you here? Oh, I don't want your sheep. I don't want your cattle. I don't want your donkeys. I have all of this I need with bows or without bows. Hmm? You stole my birthright and the blessing. Father wanted those for me and you stole those. And now you just want to come home. You offered me all this wealth, aren't you going to offer me some stew? I know what you did. So what is it you want? Jacob, if you if I wanted you dead, you would be dead by now. What do I want? I had a brother once. Why is it so hard for you, Jacob, to ask? Yes, ask! You've done a good job of trying to bribe me into letting you come home, but I don't recall you ever asking me to forgive you. Who said anything about that being easy? Easy. All right, Esau, will you forgive me? Lee used to say that laughter was a sign that we can never be too far from the love of God. I don't know if he always felt it or believed it, but he was right. But lamentations can be a sign of a present and real relationship. When we cry out to God, we are acknowledging that he might, just might be there. It's an amazing paradox. We're made with wonderful capacities to love. We need to be loved, and just as importantly, we need to love. but we all have the potential to become experts in our own grief. But we also have the capacity to hold each other up. In the final scene from What Would Lloyd Do, the pastor delivers a monologue that goes like this. I don't come to you this morning with answers to any questions. I don't come to you healed of anything. but I choose to be here where the unhealed gather. In this world, there is grace, but there's never enough. And there's peace, but never enough. There's love, but never enough. But together, we take what we have and we break it and we pass it out. Me and God, sometimes we talk, sometimes he listens.
2: There is more.